Are you ready for the most ridiculous internet sports show you have ever seen? Welcome to React, home of the most outrageous and hilarious videos the web has to offer. So join me, Rocky Theus, and my co-host, Raiders Pro Bowl defensive end, Max Crosby, as we invite your favorite athletes, celebrities, influencers, entertainers in for an episode of games, laughs, and of course, the funniest reactions to the wildest web clips out there. Catch Reacts on YouTube, and that is Reacts, R-E-A-X-X. Don't miss it. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Regressing to the mean since 2015, it's the Hockey PDO Cast with your host, Dmitry Filipovich. Welcome to the Hockey PDO Cast. My name is Dmitry Filipovich, and uh, joining me is a, is a fan favorite, or at least a favorite of mine. I, I'm sure everyone out there listening is is also a big fan as well. It's, uh, it's Jonathan Willis. Jonathan, what's going on, man? Hey, Dimitri. It's uh, always good to be on the show. It's it's one of my favorites, too. So uh, <laughs> that works out well. Well, and, and another one of our favorites, uh, and this is why I'm a, one of the best in the business, is uh, is Connor McDavid, who just, uh, I mean, you've obviously been following him closely as someone who, who writes about the Oilers quite a bit. It's just like, it, it's funny because I remember before the season, everyone was just sort of anointing him as, as being just the best player in the league right away. And, and that was the natural kind of pushback and reservation to be like, well, hold on a second. We've only seen like a limited number of games from him and and I, I know it's like the shiny new toy syndrome where everyone just constantly wants to you know gets excited by by the new thing but it's like I feel like it's impossible to overstate how insanely dominant he's been so far yeah I'd agree with that entirely he's uh, basically I, I kind of shudder when I think about where Edmonton would be if they didn't have Connor McDavid mm-hmm. and and unlike a lot of the other guys at the top of the scoring list He's a guy who hasn't really gotten a lot of support from his teammates. And that, to me, is kind of what sets him apart. I mean, it's, you know, having a seven-point lead on the scoring race in mid-December is pretty impressive. But then when you realize that he doesn't have the kind of support that a, a Crosby has or even a, a Tarasenko has, that makes it even even more impressive. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing, right? Like, Crosby, for example, I mean, it, it's it's flying under the radar a little bit just because Crosby's pretty much scoring every single game he's playing in. But, like, Evgeny Malkin and Phil Kessler are both above a point a game. And, and I feel like, you know, what we saw early in the season, obviously, when Crosby was out of the lineup, the Penguins were like a shell of the team they can be when everything's going together. But they still have enough impact players there where they can at least kind of stay afloat. Without McDavid, the Oilers, I mean, the the on-off stats with, without him are just insane. I was looking at them earlier when, when doing some prep for the show. And, I mean, he has a goal or a primary assist on like a third of every single 5-on-5 goal they've scored this year, which is just an insane rate. I mean, with him on the ice, they're like basically a 60%, you know, goals for chances and a 55% shots team. And without him, they're sub 50 in all of those. So it's pretty much like I made the kind of comparison, like with him on the ice, they're, they're like the mid to late 2000s Red Wings. And without him on the ice, they're, well, they're the Edmonton Oilers. 
And, and uh, five on five play is, is one of the things I think you have to look at to, to really appreciate him. And, and not just the numbers you mentioned, um, because when you kind of look at the regular points race, you see, you know, it's all jumbled together. It's your power play. It's your, your even strength. And if, if you've got a first unit power play that's any good, and in Edmonton's case, it's good because they have McDavid, you're going to have a couple of other guys who can kind of hang out in the scoring race with him. So in, in Edmonton's case, it's, it's, uh, uh, Leon Dreisaitl. Mm-hmm. But if you if you break it down to just like the five-on-five five scoring, I mean, I know you were mentioning two-way metrics, but if you, if you flip over to Pittsburgh's five-on-five five scoring right now, you'll see they've got seven forwards um, scoring more than two points per hour. Mm-hmm. Uh, S- Scott Wilson is their seventh best scorer. He's scoring 2.13 points per hour. Well, that's more than anybody on Edmonton other than McDavid. McDavid is scoring a whole point per hour more at even strength than anybody else on the team. Yeah. And and when you when you talk about those kind of numbers it, it just it, it's mind blowing really. Yeah, I mean if there's a if there's like a positive statistic out there he's probably leading the league in it. I mean we haven't even mentioned it yet cuz obviously the points are, are are sort of the most important thing but like even like something like penalty differential for example his speed is yes. just is just causing so many problems and other teams are just being forced essentially to either like you know hook him or or take him down just to just to try and slow him down a little bit and that's also another advantage especially when it, it's doubly devastating because he's also really effective on the power play so it's like he's drawing it and then he's actually scoring on the power play as well so he's basically like he's basically having his cake and eating it too is what i'm trying to say a penalty differential is one of those stats that you can overrate but i mean david's so good at it and uh i i actually it's it's interesting when i've looked at defensemen over the years one of the things that kind of uh, is telling to me when a guy is is eroding as a defenseman is he starts taking more penalties and you know not not because he's he's getting more physical, but because he's getting beat more, and he has to take penalties to make up for that. And McDavid's a guy who he just makes every defenseman look like he's eroding because he's so fast, and because you know his brain matches his speed. It's uh, it's an incredible thing to watch. Yeah, there's very there's very few guys like that that can put it all together, right? I mean, you watch, you know, there's various speedsters out there, whether it's like a Carl Hagelin or, or who have you, and, and they're in- insanely fast, and it's pretty clear they can get from point A to point B faster than any other defenseman out there, but it's like either their minds or their hands just can't keep up with it. Like, they get there, and then they just either don't know what to do with it, or they just, like, weakly miss the net with the puck or just shoot it right into the goalie's pads, whereas McDavid has, like, ha- like absolutely elite finishing ability with that speed, so it's it's like a cheat code. <laughs> it's funny in Edmonton. The, the shorthand for this is: uh, I remember we've had prospects over the years in Edmonton, and, and people call them Todd Marchant, but with hands, because you know Todd Marchant was so famously fast, but he'd, he'd get all these breakaways, and he, I don't know what his success rate was, but it was something like probably something like one in five, like just just not good numbers. And and inevitably, these Todd Marchant with hands just turn out to be Todd Marchant, yeah. and. Uh, yeah, it's, it's a very rare combination. Yeah, yeah, Yannick Hansen's like that in Vancouver where he draws the ire of Canucks fans because his speed and, and ability creates so many breakaways for himself, but then it just feels like he like he flubs them on, on, on such a high percentage of them and, and people get upset about it. But uh, it's it's it, the thing that's really neat to me is that you know, we mentioned Crosby earlier. I mean, we should point out that he has 21 goals and 32 points in 23 games this season, which is which is pretty good. I, I don't think you need to uh, crunch too many numbers to know that that's that's those are impressive rates. But it, what's neat to me is that 
just the dis- the difference in the way he's sort of doing it at this stage of his career versus the way McDavid's succeeding. Whereas I don't know, it's certainly just anecdotally, just from kind of occasionally watching it, certainly looks like Crosby's production is really coming around the net, and he's sort of doing it in these kind of wily veteran ways, where he's like at the right place at the right time, and he's just cerebrally picking teams apart in the offensive zone. Whereas McDavid's just been this overwhelming physical force that's pretty much just like taking it from one end to the other and just kind of doing it all himself. So I think that's good been kind of neat because obviously you know Crosby's sort of been the best player in the league for for a long time now and and McDavid's kind of coming to take it from him but Crosby's not going to give it away without a fight well and I, I don't want to take anything away from Crosby's he like he's, he's obviously having a good season and, and like you've pointed out you know a lot of his success is coming from close to the net but he's also got a 27% shooting percentage. Yes. Like he was under 15% last year. Uh, the highest he's ever had over a full season is 17%. And that's more than five years ago now. Like uh, at some point, and I know you can improve your shooting percentage somewhat if you, you know, you stand close to the net, but, but in almost all of these cases, we see a guy eventually sort of regress back to what he's done over his whole career. And, and in Crosby's case, if, if his goal scoring cools off even a little bit, like he's, you know, he's kind of keeping pace with McDavid, maybe a little bit better in terms of points per game, I'm not sure. But if, you know, if that cools down at all, then he can't keep up anymore. Yeah, I mean, that's obviously, it's, he's not going to keep shooting 27%. And, and even though he's been sort of like around around 15% for his career, which is still really, really good. Like if that, oh, dro- if that, if that drops yeah. off where, you know, if he's at his kind of career rate right now, we're talking about him having 11 or 12 goals in 23 games, which is still really good. That's like a 40 ish pace, but it's not nearly a, a goal a game. So no, that, that, that that's, that's an, obviously a sort of context that you need to provide. It's, it's, but it's, it's funny. It's just how human, the human mind works where it's like, I'm aware of that, but at the same time, like I don't want to be the person that's betting against Sidney Crosby. You know, if it was if this was a different player, I'd be like, oh come on, like of course he's not going to shoot 27. percent But I'm just like, yeah, but it's Sidney Crosby, so I <laughs> like I don't want to like you know be vocal about it. Like I, I think he's going to shoot, come back down to 15. percent But what if he doesn't? <laughs> well, and and the the other thing I think is you kind of run into the sort of a recurring problem in analytics, which is the the descriptive versus the uh, uh, predictive mm-hmm. and and you know you don't want to take away anything that a guy has done because you know Crosby has legitimately scored those goals um, you know maybe maybe there's an element of chance involved but you know he's doing the thing like he put the puck in the net at the end of the day he deserves credit for for scoring the goals and and in a lot of cases what you find and, and this comes up a lot in, in sort of the scoring chances versus um, regular shot metrics debate a lot is is you end up looking at the two stats and you kind of wonder which one you know is going to predict what's going forward and which one just describes what has already happened but won't be indicative of future results and uh, you know who am I to say Crosby isn't shooting 27% on merit right now? I don't think he's going to keep doing it, but uh, yeah. Well, I mean, he's all, and, and it's also along that same line, like he's banked 20 plus games of, of this production, right? So it's like, it's not, we can't necessarily be like, okay, in the final 50 games, he's going to shoot such a low percentage that it's going to even out and kind of, and his overall yeah. total is going to come back to his career average. Like, that's not necessarily how regression works, right? They could, like, he's, he, there's probably going to be a stretch where he goes like five or six games without a goal and, 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 you know, has like 20 shots during that time and, you know, it slows down a little bit. That's just how the the eighty two game. That's the nature of an eighty two game grind. But it's uh, it's remarkable what he's doing right now, and it's just kind of a testament to sort of the the, the a different exciting talent we have in this league at this point in time. 
Absolutely. And, and that's a, that's a thing always to keep in mind about regression. Like it doesn't, you know, it, if you're, if you're on a hot streak, it doesn't mean that later in the year you're going to have a cold streak and balance it out. We see, we see this all the time with teams that, you know, ride these bubbles early in the year. And then at the end of the season, they're still in the playoff race and people go, well, ha, you got it wrong. Yes. But they, they went eight and two to start. So, you know, they're three games under 500, the rest of the way they still have a better than 500 record. It doesn't yeah. mean they're a good team. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a good point. Um, now you mentioned a good se- uh, segue there between descriptive and, and predictive. And uh, I think that ties in perfectly to the discussion that I want to have about uh, Chris Russell with you. Um, Let's get out of the way because we've already got everyone's clicks and downloads. And I'm I'm sure there's a lot of people out there that are like (laughs) just rolling their eyes like, oh, not this again. And just maybe even completely tuning out. But uh, I I think there is a lot to unpack here. And I think it's an interesting discussion because we just keep coming back to this. It's it's, it's insane. We were discussing this uh, privately over messages or when it was kind of blowing up last week. And it's like, has a fourth fifth defenseman ever generated this much angst amongst like both parties like it's just insane oh it's nuts i I do think i do think i have i've got a couple i'm working on a piece on chris russell right now and uh when i really dug into him i found some things i didn't expect to find so i i hopefully can contribute something new to the conversation here but um you look at chris russell and over his career and uh, tyler dello's the guy who actually pointed this out to me first but um you know, he's basically a 50% guy by Fenwick. Like, you have to allow that he's a legitimate shot blocker, so his course he is, you know, going to underrate him as a hockey player. Mm-hmm. But he's basically a 50% Fenwick guy, and he's basically a 50% goal differential guy. Yep. Like, the difference between those two numbers is almost nothing. And if it weren't for the fact of, you know, he's had these wild swings in PDO over the years, and he's... Um, we, we wouldn't even be arguing this. We would say, okay, this guy's an average-ish, even-strength defenseman, uh, who can, has a special teams component to his game. And we would all say, okay, you know, I'm not saying he shouldn't be in the NHL or anything. This is a, a perfectly serviceable NHL defenseman. But but when he gets on these these wild swings, you have guys going, oh, that's the best defenseman the Edmonton Oilers have. And I, I think that's where a lot of the pushback came this year was, well, I, I know for me personally, I had four guys... Um, like, I hadn't even said anything particularly negative about him. Like, I'd kind of described him as a 4-5 or five defenseman. And... I had guys in his first game coming after me going, oh, look at Chris Russell block that shot and pick up that assist. You said Chris <laughs> Russell was garbage. Chris Russell's awesome. And I'm like, okay. Yeah. You know, we're, we're one game into the year. Like, let's let's cool it down a little bit. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think where people particularly lost the plot and, and started a lot of this pushback was when I, I, I started seeing all these, like, uh, stats being thrown out about their win-loss record with Russell versus without oh. him. And I was like, well... Okay, <laughs> that's uh. If you don't, you don't hear so mu- you don't hear so much of that now that they've gone three and seven in their last ten with him or whatever it was. Yeah, it, it's such a and it happens every it, not every year, but the last guy I remember it happening to was Cam Barker was where he was in the lineup. Uh, the team was riding the percentages early. He got hurt just as the team lost started losing ground in the percentages, mm-hmm. and people will go, "Oh well, look, he he uh, he drives save percentage," and and really all it is is it's a matter of timing. And and Cam Bark when it happened to Cam Barker, you know, he came back and then for three months the Edmonton Oilers were terrible and nobody was talking about Cam Barker driving wins with his puck moving ability anymore. And uh, we're going to see the same thing with Chris Russell. Yeah, yeah, I, I would if I were a betting man, I would I would put my money on that. But it's like the, okay, there's a few different ways to approach it. It's like one, I don't really understand where this idea that 
I mean, he is a very good shot blocker. Even if you, even if you remove uh, sort of the raw shot blocking totals and you look at, at at the efficiency rate in terms of like the total number of shots that are happening when he's on the ice, and then kind of prorating it to the amount he's blocking, like he's still one of the best in the league at that. But it's like there's this idea that his shot blocking is somehow boosting his goalie's save percentage, and I, don't, I feel like people haven't even bothered to look into it, because if you had, you'd notice that over his career, he's actually weirdly had higher on-ice shooting percentages, yeah. rather than, and he's sort of been like middling, if not even like a bit below average save percentage. Like, I, I just don't understand where where that's even coming from. It seems like, you know, I, I kind of understand uh, sort of just intuitively i guess it would make a little bit of sense like oh this guy's helping his goalie out he's 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 stopping all these shots for him before they even get to him but it's like we know that defensemen generally don't have these sorts of uh pronounced impacts on their goalies and team save percentages and that's especially true for russell if you just took five seconds to look at his career stats career stats yeah he he is um i I looked at this after after a discussion with uh, david johnson who's um sort of Famously or infamously, depending on your perspective, a believer that guys um, can drive shooting percentage. And mm-hmm. when you look at Russell's career, like his his teams do have a, a a slightly better save percentage when he's on the ice than when he's off the ice. But it's it's such a small number that um, it, it's you know like like everybody else, it, it's such a small variation that even if it's a hundred percent skill based, and and I would argue, you know, it probably isn't. It, that like some guys are just going to have a slightly higher or a slightly lower number for no real reason. Um, but even if it's a hundred percent skill based, he's basically going to regress to almost exactly his shot metrics. Like a guy with a 100.2 PDO is, you know, like he, if, if his true talent level is 100.2 rather than 100, even it's not going to make a big difference in right. the long run. Yeah. Um, th- but, but the one thing about um, Russell, and I, I wanted to get into this, I've, I've got a piece coming in the next day or two, I'm not sure where it's going to run yet, mm-hmm. is I, I found something really interesting when I dug into his shot metrics and looked at them by game situation. So if you compare Russell to every defenseman in the league, or if you, what, what I did was I gathered um, uh, 20 defensemen with similar shot metrics, um, both relative and raw, and, and what I found is if you look at score-tied situations, all of those defensemen are better than Russell. Mm-hmm. And if you look at um, situations where his team has the lead, all of those defensemen are worse than Russell, mm-hmm. pretty much. And it's it's one of the and and I, I said I said worse and I mean worse because when his team has the lead, Russell actually outperforms a whole bunch of defensemen by uh, by shot metrics. And, and my theory about this is that he plays such a risk averse game that I, I think. The kind of game that Russell plays is the kind of game that NHL coaches want their teams to play when they have the lead, and, and we can argue about whether or not it's a good idea. But the super conservative, going to a shell, you know, clear the puck to the to the to the neutral zone, like mm-hmm. don't turn it over, but but you're not trying for a, a breakout pass. You're just cleanly clearing the puck out to center and, and creating a you know one of those fifty fifty battles in the neutral zone. And, and what that does is when you have the lead, it's a very safe, very low risk um, game. But the rest of the time. Which is why coaches do it. But the rest of the time, it's one of those games that really limits your potential because mm-hmm. you're not maintaining possession. And I think that's what Russell does poorly. And because he's so good in the defensive zone, and because he has some legitimate ability in the offensive zone, he's another one of these guys who all these things he does in transition that that hurt his team or that limit his, his team's potentials, maybe a better way to put it, they kind of get lost because he doesn't have those highlight reel gaffes. He's just a very safe, steady guy at either end of the rink. But 
all that stuff in between that gets your team from one end of the rink to the other is where he falls short yeah yeah but i mean on on the same token like the that sort of conservative play with the lead is is probably one of my biggest pet peeves about hockey i mean i I know it happens in in every sport it's sort of it's a a bigger kind of human psychological thing where it's like it's it's easy when you're ahead to sort of just like be more conservative and and turtle and and not try to blow it and be the goat for your team as opposed to when you're looking for a goal or you're looking for whatever you're you're gonna push more but like man i wish i wish teams were more aggressive when they had the lead like it's just like how many times do we have to see uh especially in the playoffs where it's like a team's up like three one or something and they're just they're just sitting back and then it's like oh you know the other team's just playing better i don't know why it's like well it's because the team's just like spoon feeding them here like it's it's just it's one of my biggest pet peeves in hockey i i completely agree and i think the reason it's been so persistent is because the nhl is such a low scoring league mm-hmm. so when when you look at teams records when they're leading after two periods they do really well. Like, like if you if you if you take a lead into the third period in the NHL, you're going to win that game. I, I don't know what, what the percentage is, but it, it's an incredibly high number because there just isn't that much scoring. So you can you can go to these uber conservative strategies and not realize how it's costing you because there just isn't that much scoring. And if it was a higher scoring league, I think we'd see teams really get burned by this. But because the goals are so infrequent as it is, I don't think they get burned enough to, to, to learn the lesson that, you know, in the third period, maybe you should just keep playing the way you were playing that got you the lead in the first two frames. Yeah, yeah. Well, and and I think that's a point that wasn't really being brought up enough last year when we were having that whole debate about um, how we could increase goal scoring because I do think that, you know, the the bigger problem, especially last year, was like you want to open up the game at 5-1-5 so that there's more chances and it's more free-flowing and goals aren't necessary. The goals don't necessarily equal excitement, but at the same time, if you have more goals being scored in, in, in totality, you're going to have more lead changes and, you know, it's not some of these teams it feels like when you go up like two nothing early or something it's like well this game's pretty much over like it's the, the, the one one team's not going to blow it and other team's not even really going to make a push to make a comeback here so like let's just tune into another game and and obviously if there was more goals being scored we'd see more of that fluctuation yeah and um I think you're absolutely right that those those big swings in games are, are what make the really memorable games. Like you think of the great comebacks; those those are all the always the the most exciting games. You know, when a team's down three nothing and they win four three, and it it almost never happens anymore, and and that, that takes away a lot from the game. Uh, the other thing I think is that if there are more goals uh, being scored overall, it makes it a lot more difficult for teams to. Uh, I, I think it highlights the talent differences between teams more, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Like if there's only five goals in a game versus 10 goals in a game, there's more data sets per game in a higher scoring league to show you which team is good and which team is bad. And uh, that's something I think that matters a lot over time and and which really does highlight, you know, who's doing things right and who's doing things poorly. Whereas, you know, in a 3-2 league, you have one year where you, you get a few bounces and you're, you're kind of winning those one-goal games, which is, is hard to sustain long-term. And, and, you know, you're a genius. And then the next year, you're, you're terrible and nobody can figure out why. And uh, I just don't think, it's, I don't think it's a good product and I, I don't think it um, encourages good decision-making. 
Yeah, well, it's interesting because I'm sure like Gary Bettman or other people working for the league would tell you that, you know, they're, they're big fans of the parody the league has and how there's all these races that come down to the wire at the end of the season and how, uh, you know, around the trade deadline, around the all-star break, so many teams are in it that it doesn't feel like it's a completely lost season unless you have a team like, you know, in 2014-15, like the Sabres, for example, or this year, the Coyotes, where it's like they're woefully inequipped to actually compete on a nightly basis. But at the same time, like, I, I just think that, you should be rewarded for competence and for being and for doing your job well. And, and I feel like a lot of times we don't actually necessarily see that cream rise to the top unless it's like really later in the season or unless it's completely obvious. Like we just see this sort of middle ground where it's muddled together with all these teams. And I'm not sure that's necessarily the best way to approach doing business. Yeah, I, I understand the appeal of um, of parity from a league perspective because you want all thirty markets doing well. You want all thirty markets invested, but I, I think it's it's one of those things that gets overstated. Like Vancouver right now, if you look at the standings, um, I'm, I'm not sure exactly how many points they are out, but uh, an insurmountable amount. Well, yeah, <laughs> it, it really is, right? Yeah. Like, but it but it doesn't look like we all know it is it. You know they're okay, so they're four points out right now, theoretically, because they've played two games more than LA. LA has thirty points in twenty-seven games. Vancouver is twenty-six points in twenty-nine games, and you know, so Jim Benning can go on the radio and talk about his twelve, fifteen, and two record and say, you know, we're three games under five hundred, so we're we're really close or whatever. But mm-hmm. realistically, they're not going to make it. They're they're pretty much dead right now, even mm-hmm. though there's only a four-point gap in the standings. And I think fans realize that. I, I think that um, this this artificial parody that that uh, is being pushed, I think people see through it, and I don't think you lose much when you, you take it away. I mean, if Vancouver actually looked like they were out of it um, by the standings as opposed to by us just knowing and everybody, like, it. Ha- sorry, <laughs> I'm, I'm going off on a bad tangent here, but um, it, it hasn't changed the way fans view it, like, Every time I run into Vancouver fans, I hear things like, oh, they should blow it up. They should trade the Sedins. They should rebuild. This is a team that's going nowhere fast. Yep. And just because they're four points out doesn't change that. Fans are smart enough to know. And, and this parody, you're not really fooling anybody. So why bother with it? Yeah. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, let's get back to this Russell discussion quickly, just because uh, I think it's interesting from a from a larger perspective in terms of... Um, where like from from Peter Peter Shirelli's perspective because we see, we've seen all these quotes come out from him um and I, I, don't, I, I don't know it's like it seems like a lot of them are just like be like he's feeding them to certain media members and they're just eating it up and sort of taking it as gospel because it's coming from a quote unquote hockey person whereas if you sort of just took a step back and you know, either fact-checked it or just thought about it from anything resembling a critical uh, level, you'd realize that a lot of it is gibberish. But, like, it, it bugs me personally because I'm a big fan of microstats, just especially just realizing that obviously there's still, you know, a lot of kinks we need to work out with them and, and we're still trying to figure out the predictive value and, and what we can do with them moving forward, but that shouldn't obscure the fact that they're descriptive and we can use them as just another input that leads to the larger output of outscoring your opponent. And I think that when they're misrepresented like this, when, you know, he's boasting about how he's second in the league behind just Nicholas Cronwall at something, it's like, well, the, Nicholas Cronwall's been skating around with a comically oversized forks sticking out of his back for a couple of years now like he's 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 completely cooked and it's like I, Nicholas Cronwell used to be a fantastic player he's not anymore so it's like if you just think about it that way it's like if you're 
behind Nicholas Cronwall on a metric? Like, is that a good metric or is that even like factually correct? Like, these are the questions you should be asking yourself as Peter Shirelli and as a journalist writing these articles, but we're not seeing this sort of happen and that misrepresentation is turning people off from microstats. And I guess that's what that's what's bugging me about this. Yeah, uh, Peter Shirelli's quotes on this subject have been fascinating, and he's been consistent in them, you know, all year because the the stat that he that was recently out there was almost exactly what he said in October. And, and I've got a whole bunch of different opinions about this, some, uh, and uh, <laughs> some of them are probably wrong. But but um, one of the things I would say is when you're dealing with a rights holder, the rights holder always has uh, some motivation to make the team look better. And in, in, in all the cases where I've seen this quote, it's been a case where uh, Shirelli's talking to somebody who's, who's basically friendly to the team or is, is part of a media outlet that's, um, you know, has some connection to the team. So mm-hmm. there's no incentive there to really, really hammer down the way there would be if it was a, if the hockey media was, you know, truly independent of, of these individual franchises. Yes. Um, the other thing is if you talk to a reporter who has had any reporter, I don't care who it is, who's had some confrontations with sort of the analytics community and you tell them, well, you know, those book smart analytics guys don't know what they're talking about. That's going to feed into them. Mm -hmm. It's just like if, if you're a very analytically inclined GM and you come to me and you, you, uh, you tell me that, you know, these guys that I've had arguments with these dumb reporters don't see the underlying numbers, but I, Jonathan Willis will appreciate them. Of course that feeds to my ego. I have to be really careful that that doesn't skew how I view things. Right. So there's, there's some natural inclinations. If you talk to certain people, um, to just perceive things in a certain way. We all look at the world through our own um, lens of experience, and, and you can uh, make sure your quote is accepted uh, or gets at least some positive support from whoever you're talking to if you, if you pick somebody who's naturally inclined to believe the things you believe. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's part of it. But the other thing is, the, uh, Matt Henderson wrote a piece where he, he basically said the Oilers are getting conned, or you know he sort of suggested the Oilers might be getting conned by some shady analytics group that's yeah. feeding them bad garbage numbers. And, and to me, that's a, this is a case of Hanlon's razor. You don't want to attribute um, malice when you can adequately explain the situation via ignorance. Uh, <laughs> having Nicholas Cronwall and Chris Russell as the league's two best puck movers is farcical on the face of it. Like, I don't know how you, you know, Peter Shirelli, I think, actually said something like, ahead of Duncan Keith, and you just go, really, Peter? Yeah. Ahead of Duncan Keith? Okay, think about that for a moment. Yeah. Um, but when you, look at, when you look at the numbers, and, and um, I'm going to give a shout-out to the Oilers blogger Wheat Noyle on Twitter here. He, he's been tracking um, defensemen uh, passing, puck exits, zone defense, all year and just fantastic work. But when you look at his numbers, you see that Russell handles the puck more in the defensive zone than pretty much any other Oilers defenseman. He handles the puck a ton. Mm-hmm. He makes a ton of zone exits and he makes very few turnovers. Mm-hmm. But the, and, and so if you're looking at just zone exits that don't lead to turnovers, Chris Russell's a fantastic puck moving defenseman. But the problem is a lot of them are these 50-50 ones where Chris Russell has clean possession in the defensive zone. He dumps it out to center and a 50-50 battle for possession ensues because he's just put it to an area where there's an oiler and an, op- and an opponent. Right. Those puck exits are not effective. They, half the time they're going to come back the other way. That's the nature of the beast. Yep. And what you want to do is you want to maintain possession. And Chris Russell's really bad at that. If you look at his zone exits with possession... He's down in Eric Griba, Adam Larson, you know, the ring it around the boards and are off the glass kind of defenseman. Mm-hmm. He is a bad puck mover for that reason. But if so, to me, it really comes down to just not understanding what you're looking at. If you're looking at a certain type of exits and you're just 
as long as he doesn't turn the puck over, you're not dinging him, you're going to think he's a great puck mover. If you look at the at, uh, zone exits where he actually maintains possession of the puck, you're going to realize he's a highly mediocre puck mover. And um, to me, I just think Edmonton's looking at the stats and they, they don't know they don't know which one's actually predictive. Yeah. They're looking at the numbers, and they're looking at the numbers which support their existing view of the player. And um, because of that, maybe they're inclined to be a little less critical than they should be. Well, yeah, I mean, having access to the data is one thing, but then actually interpreting it correctly is another. And, and that does bring up a good point. Like, when we call someone a puck mover, we're not describing the literal act of them moving the puck across the ice we're describing like moving the puck to a teammate with a purpose and it's like i I always whenever i track a game i always ding players for for those sort of 50 50 clear clears i just mark it as a you know he cleared the zone but without possession and i don't view that as a good thing and we saw a lot like when i was tracking the playoffs last year we saw a lot of that with russell for the stars and we're seeing a lot of it this year and and i just think if, if if you're valuing the right things for your defenseman which i think that Especially for the plays where it's like, it's one thing when you're getting a heavy forecheck and you're just trying to get it out of your zone and regroup, but it's like when you have time and space to operate and you're just, your purpose or your goal or, or what you view as the best play is to just get it out of your zone and worry about it later, like that's not an optimal way to approach the game in my opinion. So I, I think that, you know, it's differentiating between those things, those two things is very critical here. Yeah, that that is absolutely it. Um, outside of sort of execution in the offensive and defensive zones, um, the, the thing that really matters most to winning games is the, the two factors of possession and position. And if you can improve your puck position on ice, if you, like if you sa- if you improve your puck position on ice while sacrificing guaranteed possession, you're not really helping your team. You want to be a guy who improves both things at the same time. And it, it kind of goes back to the idea of whether you dump, dump and chase in the offensive zone or whether you carry the puck in. Um, I, I think from a coaching standpoint, there's a, a necessary evil element to, to the dump and chase game. Sometimes you have to throw the puck in um, just because, you know, to counter certain defensive strategies. And, and in some cases, it can be useful to play a sort of a chip and chase game mm-hmm. with, with certain lines or in certain situations at certain times. And I've seen teams be very effective doing it. But in the long haul, what you want to do, like, it only works if you're getting possession back on the forecheck. Yes. And, you know, over time, teams adapt to you. If they realize you're just a chip and chase team and you can't um, force them at the blue line while carrying the puck you're going to start losing games because teams adapt to that. But that, that's all at the micro level. At the macro level, more often than not, you want to, the, the, the benefit here is you have to ha- be able to get that puck back in the neutral, or sorry, in the offensive zone, and you have to be doing things that lead to that behavior. And most of the time, that means not giving it up in the first place. Yeah. So obviously, we're sc- kind of speculating here, and, and I'm a little uncomfortable doing it just because I'd rather speak from a point of actually factually knowing stuff rather than just hypothetically guessing. But like, if you were to analyze the situation, do you think that Peter Shirelli is being sold a bill of goods here? Or do you think he's just like scrambling to find stuff that justifies his his love for Chris Russell and to just kind of get people off his back? Like, 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 is, is this stuff actually real? Because it it seems like the numbers don't match up with what other people are tracking and with what we're seeing play before play out before our very eyes. We are speculating here, but I, my interpretation is uh, ties into something that Todd McClellan said earlier this year, and I'm trying to remember what the exact quote was, but he was basically asked about you know the eye test versus analytics, and he said something along the lines of eyeballs first, mm-hmm. and uh, to me. What I think is 
if you're an established hockey guy who's been watching the game for a long time, and particularly if you've won a cup doing it, you're probably pretty good at picking out, you know, relative to other hockey guys, the things that matter. Um, you know, if, if you have me or Peter Shirelli watching a game on one pass, you're probably going to ask Peter Shirelli for his opinion over me, and you're going to be right doing so 90% of the time if where we disagree. Mm-hmm. But the, the problem is, if you have a set viewpoint, if you have your belief, then confirmation bias sets in. So mm-hmm. if you look at the game and you're really confident in what you've seen, then when you look at the data and some of the data skews one way and some of it does skews the other way, you don't ask which of these things is true. You say, okay, well, this agrees with what I saw, so... I am right, and you go away. Um, like when you see conflicting data, you should come away more conflicted. You should say, okay, I need to ask these questions and answer them, and you should challenge your own beliefs. Yes. And I think when you have a strong pre-existing belief and you look at the data and some of it supports it and some of, some of it doesn't, you don't go, okay, am I right or am I wrong? You go, I am right. This is good data. This is bad data. Yay me. And I think that's what the Oilers do. I think they're looking at it from an old school mindset. I don't think they challenge their their um, initial beliefs based on analytics. I think they look to analytics for confirmation. And I, I think it's extremely dangerous to do it that way. Yeah, yeah. The way you can really get yourself in trouble is if you you know approach someone, you're like, find me some numbers that you know I can use in my support of Chris Russell. Like that's not how you should approach this. You should go, let me see the numbers, and then you see what you know what's going on what 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 the patterns are what the trends are and then go from there and and i i do think that there's a lot of that happening here so well i I don't know if it's even that blatant like you know i believe this about chris russell go find something that supports it i think it's more of a what do the analytics say and you get a on the one hand on the other hand answer you go well the on the one hand answer agrees with me so i'm right and just instead of questioning you get you get two folders and you just take one and you just toss the other one out Um, yeah it's a uh, it's a good segue though because I, I had J.R. Lynn on the podcast the other day and we had a good chat about how at least from the outside it certainly seems like David Poyle has adapted over time and changed the way he's gone about just sort of the thinking and the rationale about assembling his roster where he completely went from uh, you know when he had Barry Trotz it was his very defensive minded conservative team and then all of a sudden now you know they, they've really cornered the market on it seems like on on these like undersized skilled forwards and no one really wanted particularly in the later rounds of the draft and and they're all of a sudden like a fun young exciting offensive team and and i think that that sort of thing is very important to highlight because we see guys like Shirelli and, and Jim Benning who I, I lumped them together because they were together with the Bruins and you know it's like there's sort of this mentality of well we want a cup so we clearly know what we're doing and you don't and i think that you can get yourself in danger there because we're, we're learning a lot more about the game over time and things are changing and the way we approach all this stuff should change as we learn more. And I think that if you don't and you aren't willing to use all that information available to you, you're going to be sort of passed by by both time and your peers. Yeah, absolutely. It's um, the, the National Hockey League, especially right now, because we're in one of those fascinating transition eras where a, a lot of new beliefs are entering the game and... Um, you know, there's kind of the same struggles that we've seen in other sports between uh, using data and, and conventional wisdom and, and all this stuff. And it, it's a, this is all terribly interesting to me. It's a, it's a great time to be alive. <laughs> but um, the, the thing is, it, because it's one of those transition eras, it's, it's sort of a, a red queen scenario where, you know, you have to keep running as fast as you can just to stay where you are. Um, the things you believe, the things I believe five years ago, uh, 
there's there's been a lot of change in the last five years. I know a lot more now than I did five years ago. Analytics has moved forward a lot over the last five years. We're constantly learning. We're constantly getting more data. Beliefs are constantly being challenged. And, and if you don't adapt to the times, you are going to get left behind. I, I had a had a good friend point out to me a few weeks back that, you know, if you look at cup-winning general managers, after they get fired, how many of them go on to win cups with their next team? And, you know, you don't see a lot of guys win cups with two teams. Right. And that maybe indicates maybe it's less that the general manager is a genius and more that, you know, one particular team had a had a particularly fertile prospect pool and, and roster of young players and the next team didn't. Um, I, I don't want to discount, you know, what happened in Boston because obviously the Bruins made a bunch of pretty good decisions to 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 get from 2006 to to 2010 and um but you know between 2010 and 2014 the Bruins made a bunch of bad decisions too and and it all has to be considered in the balance and you know, you have to be keeping up with the times because what won 5 years ago may not win 5 years from now yeah yeah i think one one of my favorite quotes is uh the absence of evidence is not the evidence of absence where it's like just because we see this constant argument from uh from the other side where it's like you know the hockey's such a dynamic game you 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 can't view it the same way you view something like baseball for example and it's like yeah obviously it's not as cut and dried and we have to work harder but just because you know we don't have all the answers right now doesn't mean we should necessarily just you know be like oh well you know what we don't have it so let's just keep doing stuff the way we've been doing it because the game is changing so much and we're seeing teams like the Penguins last year, for example. It's like they had just had four lines, all who could skate and play fast. And it's, uh, it's, it's, it, things are much different now than they were 10 years ago or, or 20 years ago. And there's so much more talent available. And I, I know that you had a, a fun little tweet storm last week where you were sort of kind of challenging, uh, conventions in hockey. And I, I think that's where, uh, a lot of this stuff is the most relevant and useful where it makes us challenge stuff and, and sort of rethink our beliefs because that's where you can really get in danger where you just think you've figured it all out, not just in hockey, but just in life where it's like, I know, I, I have all the answers. I figured everything out. I don't need to, you know, look into stuff anymore. And, and that's when, yeah, that, that, that's when things go awry. Yeah. There's a, there's a great, um, slate piece on the the NBA that came out a, a little while ago that I saw and the, uh, the, I can't remember the guy's name now, but basically what he said was, you know, if, if uh, he, he was talking to the scouts and he asked them for, for cases where they've blown it. And, you know, if they didn't, if they hadn't blown it at some point, they, uh, he, he didn't have any time for them. And because, you know, we, we do, we all make mistakes and we all should learn from them. And the day you've got everything figured out is, is frankly the day you ought to be fired because mm-hmm. as soon as you have everything figured out, you're, you've closed your mind to new learning and, and you're done. Um, you're a dinosaur waiting for the meteor. The, the other response I kind of have to the, you know, hockey is a dynamic thing and you can't measure it with analytics um, argument is what other field does that apply to? Um, economics is complex. So do we, you know, you... <laughs> How do you analyze it if not with data? Yeah. Uh, how do you analyze anything if not with data? Um, there, there's a whole bunch of complex systems in the world, and the answer isn't, well, I'm going to go by conventional wisdom and my hunches and what I see with my eyes because this is just too complex for numbers to handle. The answer is, okay, this is too complex for one person to take in with their eyes, so I want to collect as much data as I can and then make the best decision based on whatever that data is. And in hockey, the data takes a lot of forms. Sometimes it's numbers. Sometimes it's all these other things. Um, I don't think any analytics guy has ever advocated firing all his team's scouts and, and drafting off a spreadsheet because all those scouts 
are contributing data that's useful. Yeah. The, the question is how you balance it. So to me, you know, if there's complexity, that's an indication you need more data, not a compl- not a not an indication you you need to discard all the data and, and go off your your gut. Yeah, no, I completely agree. And listen, um, every time I every time I chat with you, I come away learning something new, and, and that's why I love having you on the PDO guys, Jonathan. Um, where can uh, where can people find your work online? That's very kind, Dimitri. Uh, probably the best place is just to follow me on Twitter at Jonathan Willis, and all the stuff I write it's scattered around the internet, but it all shows up there. Perfect. Um, thanks for coming on, man. We'll uh, we'll make sure to get you back on in the next couple of weeks and months, and uh, I'm sure we'll have another fun chat like this again. It's always my pleasure. I, I love the show, even when I'm not on it, and uh, I, I look forward to it. Cool. The Hockey PDO Cast with Dmitry Filipovich. Follow on Twitter at Dim Filipovich and on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com/slash hockey PDO Cast. Mm-hmm.